You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. Man, good morning, everyone. It is so good to be with you guys. I was actually just told that um, there's not much room here today, and there are still people where they're just standing in the back. So if, you, if there's a spot uh, next to you, if you can just make it uh, um, aware to the, to the ushers and greeters that there's a spot uh, available. So that, yeah, thank you. Everyone's doing it right now. It's beautiful. If there's a spot aware that other people can fill that in, that would be great. Uh, I'm just, I'm so privileged to be here this morning. It's a special weekend for me because um, this is the first time I've actually got to bring one of my daughters with me on a ministry trip. So I got to bring my nine-year-old daughter, Lily. Um, So she's here. She's in the children's ministry and uh, growing up in the Bay Area, I used to go to the Exploratorium like every year on a field trip. Anyone else? Yeah, there you go. So I just got to take my nine-year-old. I was like, look, you touched the thing and it's amazing. And it's just awesome to share that experience, even though it's not at the Palace of Fine Arts anymore. I was totally disoriented. I was like, what? The pier? What happened? Um, It's just, I'm so privileged to be here. So if you have a Bible, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. And as Dave uh, mentioned, you have been talking in 1 Corinthians about love and about unity and about diversity and about the ways in which the Spirit gifts us to promote that. Uh, But it would be unwise for us to be unaware of what could actually kill that love, what could kill what Jesus said would be the legacy of the church, which is love. So Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Read verses four through six, and I'll lead us in prayer once more. And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after wind. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that everyone in this room matters to you. I thank you that this church matters to you. I thank you that the whole church in this city matters to you and that you empower your church by your spirit to be what you desire it to be. And so this morning, we are asking for nothing less than the power of God to just move in our midst, to root up and out what must be removed, not only from our hearts as individuals, but even out of this church as a corporate body, so that your spirit would work so mightily and so freely in this place that love would truly be the mark of your people. That is our prayer. We pray it together in Jesus' name and for his glory. And the whole church said, amen. The late, great author, Gore Vidal, once said, whenever a friend succeeds, a little something in me dies. (laughs) Just want that to sit there for, for a minute. How often have I felt the same? A little pain in my heart when somebody else succeeds. How often through my life have I secretly wanted other people to fail or secretly rejoiced when they did? Have you ever felt like that? 
Okay, perhaps none of you are as bad as me. You didn't want anyone to fail. You just didn't want them to succeed more than you. I get it. But I don't think, if we're honest, any of us can escape the verdict here in Ecclesiastes, which is that fascinating book in the Old Testament that through the preacher, probably King Solomon's eyes, is looking at life under the sun without the lens of faith, looking to find meaning and purpose in the world. That's where most of us start our lives like him. And he makes this observation and tells us here what really When we look at the hidden part of our human activity, what really sparks the desire to do well? What really sparks the desire to work hard and to be successful? See, God always goes deeper than the act to the motive. What is the connection between your hands and your heart? The preacher's devastating observation is this. Envy is the dominant driving factor in all of our efforts. And this can be true even in the church. Now to say this is really not to say anything new because envy has quite a history. Think of the story of Cain and Abel back in the beginning of the Bible. These two men that were seeking to worship God and of course Abel offers his sacrifice but Cain's sacrifice was not accepted by God and so driven by anger he kills his brother. So the first human crime in history according to the Bible was driven by envy. And that story reflects a problem that plagues us to this day because envy has a history in this city. Envy has a history in our own lives. But envy's not alone. Envy also has cousins. Jealousy and covetousness. They're very closely related. I've heard it said that covetousness wants what's in your neighbor's hand. Jealousy wants to be the neighbor. Envy wants to take whatever's in your neighbor's hands out of their hands. They're all very closely related. So we know that envy isn't good, but is it really that bad? If you're anything like me, you you read through scripture and you hear about all these vile sins, but then you come to covetousness and envy and you're like, really? Like that's a problem. So we know it's not good, but is it really that bad? Well, here's what the Bible says. It is forbidden. It's listed as a vile sin, a poisonous fire inside of us and capable of creating all kinds of evil, even in this community. So I believe that God enables us to to overcome. According to the gospel, we can overcome, but the first step in overcoming something that could kill love in this church, kill love in your life, is to be convinced of its evil. In order to be convinced, I I wanna ask three questions. I believe the, the Bible gives us answers for three questions this morning that I want us to think about together. And the first is this, what does envy resent? What's the big deal? What does envy resent? Uh, Let me give you a, a definition. Envy resents the good or the advantage of another person. Or my definition, envy is the awareness of and displeasure with the advantage of other people. So envy is looking at the difference between you and your neighbor in an unhealthy way. 
It's looking at the person you're next to in an unhealthy way. But it usually comes, and this is key, it usually comes in an area that you value. And that could look different for a lot of us. It could be wealth, it could be status, intelligence, success, beauty, skill. If someone else's circumstance or their beauty or their skill is better than yours and that's an area that you prize or value, that is where you are going to be tempted to envy. To put it another way, the temptation will probably not come towards those you don't relate with, but those in your sphere of influence, those in your world. Uh, If I could just give you a silly example, I'm not an athlete. Obviously, um, I, I'm just, I, I've never really, I've played sports uh, when, I, when I was young, but I've never really been much of an athlete. I do enjoy watching sports, but that's not my gig. Like, that's not my thing. So when I get invited to, to go to a game or if I knew some, some peers of mine are doing well in athletics, like, awesome. I'm, I'm just there to enjoy the game. I don't know much about them. Like, throw the ball, kick the ball, do whatever with the ball. And I'm gonna like, have a great time. And um, when somebody tells me, hey, did you know how much so-and-so is getting paid? I'm like, that's awesome. I can't do anything with a ball. So like, that, that's awesome. I'm not an athlete. But growing up, I was a musician. And growing up in, as, as a teenager in the San Francisco Bay Area, you either liked hip-hop from Oakland or you liked Metallica. So I um, played my guitar and, and I tried to get really good at it. And all of my friends were like, Tim, you're amazing. You're like the best guitar player ever. And I'd play in my garage and all my friends would come around until one day when one of my friends said, hey, have you heard Joe? <laughs> Joe? <laughs> Who has a name like Joe, you know? <laughs> they said, oh yeah, so Joe can play all the stuff that you can, but better. <laughs> better, better, better. It just like echoed in my mind. <laughs> At least that's how I remember it going. And so I, I go to, to his garage, I go to Joe's garage. His name really was Joe, by the way. <laughs> I go to his garage and he's playing and in that moment as I saw his skill, a little something in me died. (laughs) But what it did is it made me go home and practice. It's like, oh, I will not be outdone. See, envy is not just a matter of realizing that you don't have something when somebody else does. It's what you tell yourself when you realize it. It's the things you start saying to yourself. Why should they get all the attention? Why were they chosen for that? Why don't I have that? Why didn't I get asked to do that? And from that place, we begin to motivate ourselves. Are you gonna let them get all the attention? Are you gonna let them outshine you? I mean, let, let, let's be honest. How many goals have we, that we've had that have been motivated by envy? Rarely is it just, man, I just wanna work for the common good. I mean, I'd love to be able to say that. Or, you know, I I just want to help another person out. Like, that's it. That's all I wanted to do. I just want to do a good job. See, there's often a hidden motive of envy lying deep within our hearts. And it even comes to life in the church. So what area is that for you? We We need to recognize that perhaps for some of you, it is wealth. Well, I can make as much money as them. Well, how much do you make? You know, when you, especially when you, or at an event where maybe you see someone that, you know, you went to college with and you haven't seen them for a while. Oh, how are you doing? What are you making? It's like, oh, you know, 155. Oh, I'm only 152. Like, uh, well, 
is that take home? Is that, you know, what are we talking about here? And all of a sudden it becomes a thing. Maybe for wealth, that, that's it for you. And there's this little pain in your heart and you think in the moment, you, you go home and you go, you go to bed and you're talking to your spouse like, man, if I could just get ahead a little bit. Where did that come from? Or perhaps for, for some of you, it's just success. It's not so much the money, it's just success, what you've accomplished. Man, think of all the, uh, the Bible stories that we're familiar with, especially in the Old Testament. I think about King Saul and David. Remember how Saul always and constantly struggled with the, the rise of this young, would-be king, David, which came to a head on a day when, when David went out to battle, and though he's not king yet, Saul is still king, and king, uh, would-be King David comes back into town, and everybody's singing his praises. Oh, Saul has slain his thousands, but David, his ten thousands, and everyone's like, yeah, and they're shaking their tambourines, and Saul's like, Hmm, 10,000? I mean, is it really tens of thousands? Like, I mean, what's the number, really? So maybe for you, it's success. It's just hearing about what other people have accomplished. Or it could be appearance. Just the way that you are viewed. And because that's an area that you value, you're constantly evaluating yourself and comparing and contrasting yourself with other people which then drives you incredibly hard to look a certain way in order to outdo someone else or not be outdone by another, the person that threatens you. I think we all know that one of your worst nightmares is to show up to a party or an event where somebody else is wearing the same outfit. <laughs> because then it's not just that they wore the same, then the next question is who wore it better? <laughs> At least that's how Los Angeles rolls. Like who, who wore it better? If, you're, if, if appearance is an area that you value, you're constantly comparing and contrasting and then you start gauging your efforts and you need constant assurance from your friends like, oh my gosh, you look so hot. Like, no, no, you look hot. And it's this, this, this cycle where everyone's just complimenting and, and glances. There's an article I read. I, I don't know if it's true. I'll, I'll leave this up to you. But uh, my wife and I were talking about it and I, I think it was in the Huffington Post. It was, it was written by a woman and the title was, why women actually dress for women. And, and I'll, I'll just leave this to you to discuss uh, brunch or lunch afterwards. But her point was, though it could be true of anyone, her point was, it's a common misunderstanding that women dress for men. Men don't get it. They don't, they don't care. They're like, huh? <laughs> her point was that women actually dress for other women. Like, I, I, I need the approval. I need, you know, like, who's wearing it best? Who's the, the best in the room? And that was her whole point. But really, the, the same is true for all of us, constantly comparing and contrasting. Maybe it's circumstances. Someone else got a house, you lost yours. Someone else has a relationship, you don't have one. Why don't I have one? How many children do you have? What do your children do? Social status, how you're viewed by the community or your skill. Well, my business can be just as amazing. My art and creativity can be even better. Or my parenting is even better because I do this crazy sleep schedule thing and then the other parents are feeling super insecure because they use a bottle. The result, according to the preacher's observation, is excessive work, perhaps even debt, stress, and toil. People really work hard out of envy. That's why the late uh, atheist Christopher Hitchens once said that what fuels an economy is envy. He made this observation. He says, if you want to get an economy back on its feet, promote envy. 
And people do all kinds of things. Because here's the deal, when you work hard from a place of envious motivation, you aren't just building a career, you're building a reputation. You're building an identity. So envy does not see a neighbor as an image bearer of God, but as a rival. And our enemy, the devil, would love to see that happening in this church. When driven by envy, we do not see one another as God's creation, but our competition. So that's what envy resents. But the second question is, well then, what does that reveal? What does envy reveal about us? Envy reveals a desire to prove ourselves. It's a desire to prove ourselves constantly through our efforts. The reason that we are constantly evaluating one another in terms of wealth and appearance and success is probably because we evaluate ourselves in terms of wealth and looks and success. So we're looking to be validated. We're looking to be superior because we think that once we're validated, we will be satisfied and it is simply not true. The envier wants to be envied. That's really the truth. Oscar Wilde, the the great author, once said, the number or the amount of your envious persons confirms your capability. How good are you at something? Well, how many people envy me? (laughs) Doesn't matter what you do. That's what the envier is looking for. The envier is looking to be envied. And so we work, we try, we try harder and harder to prove ourselves. And the preacher's word here in Ecclesiastes uh, that he uses to describe that is toil. And the unfortunate thing is that it even happens within the church. We wanna look a certain way in the church. We wanna achieve a certain kind of influence or status in the church, especially as uh, you as a community have been going through a series on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Rivalry can even happen when you're talking, you would think that when you're talking about the Holy Spirit and his power and all the different ways that he gifts you and talking about love, you would think that it would just be like amazing. And yet subtly envy and jealousy and covetousness creeps in and says, well, why do they have those gifts? Because let's face it, some gifts are more showy than others. You know, and some gifts are a little more hidden. You know, the person that's, that's gifted with this prophetic word, they say one, one word, you know, at a community group gathering, and everyone's like, oh my gosh, life-changing, but you have the gift of hospitality. <laughs> and you're like, was my casserole life-changing? Like, you know. <laughs> I gave you a place to meet. Wasn't that life-changing? And And we end up playing the secret yet subtle game even within the church. So much to the point where we even feel the need to tell each other about our success. Here's a challenge for you. I was challenged with this this summer um, because I I think one of the areas that that I'm most tempted uh, to envy is the amount that another person knows. See, I've always been an idiot for most of my life. barely graduated high school. I got my, when people are throwing down, you know, letters like PhD, I'm like GED right here. (laughs) So I always feel super insecure about how much I know. So Dave will tell you this. I'm like, oh yeah, well, I I know this. I know a fact about something, you know. (laughs) Let me tell you. So one of my temptations is that I just want to tell everyone everything I know. But this summer I read a book that said, if this is your weak spot, go learn something amazing and don't tell anyone. (laughs) 
And I read that, I was like, <laughs> and I told my wife, I was like, honey, look what I just read. Like, <laughs> and she's, <laughs> she's like, really? <laughs> so I don't know, that, that's my weak spot. I'm super embarrassed right now, but <laughs> what about for you? Like, you know, if it's appearance, okay, go wear the most amazing thing and don't take a selfie or like don't. <laughs> If you claim it's all just about the fabric and the design, okay, enjoy it, you know, all to yourself. <laughs> See, the truth is when we're not envied and when others still get what we want, we feel this deep pain and displeasure in our heart. So what envy reveals is not only a desire to prove ourselves, but underneath that, envy re reveals a deep unrest. You're unsettled. You're like, oh, this isn't settling well with me. And that's why the preacher says here, when he makes his observation, he said, hey, I just took a good look at all the entire world and basically everyone's working hard because of envy. That was his conclusion. But what he looks for in the next two verses, he's like, man, what would it be like to have, you know, yes, we have work and responsibility. Like, don't be a fool, don't be lazy, but we also need a handful of rest. So we have a responsibility, but we need another handful of, of rest, indicating that all of our toil, most of our toil is coming from this place of deep unrest, with ourselves, a place of unrest with others, a place of unrest with God himself. It's Cain and Abel all over again. Envy is looking at what God hasn't given to us. God, you haven't given that to me. And I'm under the impression that I need this or I have to have it or I deserve it. Envy's always looking at what God has not given to us. And because God has not given what we think we need, we begin to see him as the problem. We begin to see him as the enemy. So covetousness says, money will solve my problem. But God hasn't given me the money that I want. That other person has the money. Therefore, God, you are the problem. Envy says, the person has the money I need, and not only, God, should you be blamed, but I don't want that other person to have it. And so with my sarcastic remarks, I will begin to make that person feel less. Or in the privacy of my own mind, I will somehow diminish their effort. Oh, well, it wasn't really successful. Oh, I know where they got all their secrets from. I read that book too because I know a lot. <laughs> Our desires, apart from grace, are based upon lust. Like bottomless pits looking for something other than God to satisfy. And so it disintegrates our souls I don't know how else to convince us of this, but when we read all these passages in the Old and specifically in the New Testament when it talks about unity in the church, notice envy comes up all over the place. Whenever Paul or, or Peter, whenever they're trying to address all the things they're trying to promote, they also almost always address the things that can kill unity and peace and faith and hope and love because envy, it disintegrates our soul as an individual and it disintegrates the unity and peace and love that the Holy Spirit is producing in our lives. So it reveals a deep unrest, but that deep unrest actually comes from, and here's what I believe is most hard-hitting, a deep unrest ultimately comes from a deep unbelief. 
It's a vision that pushes God out of the picture. In fact, in Romans chapter one, we're told that envy, because envy is listed there among all the vile sins that Paul lists in Romans chapter one, there's envy, and it says that envy is a result of turning away from God. You, You turn away from God, and then you're driven by envy. And if we're not convinced, let me just give you a few more, just, you know, Bible verses you can put on your refrigerator. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 30. A tranquil heart, which is what the preacher's looking for here, gives life to the flesh, but envy makes your bones rot. Like, put that on your coffee cup. (laughs) (laughs) Or try this one. This is good. Proverbs 27, 4. Wrath, cruel, anger, outrageous, but who is able to stand before envy? And if we think this doesn't happen in the church, look at what James says, writing to the New Testament church, writing to us. James 3.16, he says, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Wow. What envy reveals is an unbelief. So the last question I wanna ask is what does envy require? Because most of the articles you read out there are about how to control envy. They recognize that our our culture is is more and more getting to the point where we recognize envy, but usually the solution is you gotta manage it. But the Bible does not say that you are ever to manage envy. So what does envy require? First of all, it requires repentance. Envy requires repentance, which simply means it's got to be named and called out in your own heart. It's got to be recognized for what it is, for what it does, and where it leads. See, that's why confession is so crucial in the Christian life, because confession acknowledges what God already acknowledges. It's not as though God is unaware of what is going on in your heart right now, as though today, during our time of worship and response, we're gonna confess our sin, and God's like, what? You, you did what? Like you thought, <laughs> see, conf- God already sees it. And the Holy Spirit is, is um, Jesus told us the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin or another translation says the Holy Spirit is our convincer because we have a hard time being convinced of our sin. We have an easy time being convinced of the sin of everyone else, but we have a hard time being convinced of our own sin. The Holy Spirit convinces us that this is actually an issue. So if any of us right now are in that place where we're thinking, oh yeah, this is a good word that my wife needs here. Oh yeah, my my husband needs here. Just assume for a moment that this is actually for you. (laughs) That it must be confessed. It actually must be named. Which, if I'm honest, is a very hard thing for me to do. But the truth is, if we don't confess it, we're not dealing with it. And that it is free to run rampant in our own lives and it will, it will influence the church. It will. There's really no such thing as a private sin. It eventually affects the public and social realm. But it's hard to confess. This, this summer I took a sabbatical uh, for three months with my wife and my kids and uh, I've never really done that before. And it was amazing for me. And the, the first month, um, my wife and I, we just kind of went off the radar. You know, no text messaging, no Twitter, no Instagram, no Facebook, no whatever. When I told my church I did that in L.A., um, because L.A., you guys invented Twitter, but L.A. like uses it. Um, 
when I said that to my church, there was an audible gasp. It's like, yeah, I'm gonna go off Twitter like. <gasps> <laughs> so we were just in this space where we were just really wanting to like, you know, read our Bibles and, and I've never been good at journaling. I'm just not that guy. I'm not like the Moleskin nerd. Like I just, I, I don't know everything there is to know about journaling, but really felt the spirit of God say, hey, you need to learn to reflect. And so during that first month, I was just, you know, trying to, I'm just trying to listen to God, read scripture, journal, and God was making me aware of all these sins in my life and one of them was envy and it kept coming up. God was just revealing it like day after day. But when I would go to write it in my journal, it's like I couldn't do it. Which, I mean, that's crazy. Nobody else is gonna read my journal and yet I couldn't write it. I was like really struggling with things today, you know. (laughs) And I caught myself, I'm like, I can't even write the word. Like in my journal, what am I doing? Cheating at solitaire? Like, I mean... There's no reason for me not to write this down. I literally, it, it took effort. It's like, envy there. I said it, put the pen down. I'm like, okay. I said it. And it was then that God began to deal with it, showing me where, where the root of it was. And, and once I went there, God was showing me how much of it actually affected other areas of my life. And I don't want you to think, church, for a moment that, that what I'm saying is the church needs to get all negative and we have this sadistic focus on sin. But think of yourselves as a gardener. And you just love the garden of, of God's work and grace in the church. And so you hate the weeds and you, you pull the weeds out, not just because you thrive on hating weeds, but because you love the garden. God said, I want to uproot this stuff. I want to take it out, the stuff that poisons your relationships, poisons your perspective, poisons the way that you function and interact with other people in your jobs. And in this church, God says, I want to tear it out so that the garden would grow, so that the fruit of the Spirit would flourish, not just in your life, but in the life of your family, in the life of your friendships, in the life of this church. If we don't confess it, we're not dealing with it. If we don't confess it, we are allowing envy to rot us from the inside out. And who knows, who knows where it will actually lead you. I've spoken with some people recently who were running on envy for most of their lives only to realize it later and look back in grief. And the same could be true of our churches. And here's why I think it's especially hard to confess envy. It's easy for us in our busy cities to confess worry. It's easy to confess worry. Why? Because worry makes you look good. Because worry makes you look busy. And we value busyness, unfortunately, as a culture. How are you doing? Oh, busy. Oh. (laughs) What you really mean is important. (laughs) We love to talk about how we're busy or I'm so stressed, indicating I'm doing so much stuff right now. (laughs) It's so, it is easy. I have no problem confessing, Pastor Tim, how are you doing? Busy. (laughs) You know, the ministry never stops. Just so much ministry (laughs) happening. (laughs) You know, I get home from a long Sunday. My wife's like, how was your day? Oh, just busy. I'm just serving the people, baby. That's why I can't do the dishes right now because I just... (laughs) As I walk into my home where my wife is busy, but she, there, there's no glamour in busy, being a, you know, a, a, a busy mom where, you know, I got three daughters, so it's basically like living a psychotic Disney movie. You know, you, <laughs> you come in and it's just chaos, and I'm like, oh, I've just been so busy. 
so stressed. Oh, you know, I'm just so anxious because so much good stuff is happening in my life. But how many of us, when somebody said, how are you doing? You said, I'm just full of envy. (laughs) Maybe at you right now because you look so good or, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's funny, but let's be honest. We don't mind confessing certain sins because in our twisted culture, it actually makes us look good, but nobody likes confessing envy. Nobody likes confessing jealousy. Nobody likes confessing covetousness because it makes us look weak. But church, let me tell you the truth. We are weak. Apart from Jesus Christ, we are weak, but in him we are strong. So can we find forgiveness for such a vile sin, such as envy? The answer is yes. Because the history of envy came to a head when Jesus Christ came. Perfect in every way. Jesus resisted all temptation against envy and yet was delivered up to be crucified because of envy in others. It wasn't until I did the study on envy that I never noticed it before, but the next time you read through the Gospels, you will find that, yes, the, the, the leaders of the nation of Israel at that time, the high priests, they all delivered up Jesus to be crucified. But what I never noticed before is that the only time that we are given a motive in Scripture for why they delivered up Jesus, it was envy. It says, for the religious leaders delivered Jesus over to be crucified because of envy. Jesus was delivered up because of their envy, but the truth is he was delivered up because of our envy as well. Where we looked at God as the problem, where we were operating out of what we thought we needed in life and what we thought God withheld from us. He was delivered to be crucified because of envy in us, and yet this was a part of God's plan to deliver us. So Jesus is the more righteous than Abel, but he took the place of guilty Cain. He took the place of guilty me, and he took the place of guilty you, so that we might have peace, so that we might have that tranquility, so that we might have Christ's righteousness, so that we might have peace between us and God and us and each other. Yes, envy is a poisonous fire, but it can be quenched by the peace of Jesus Christ. Because what the preacher's searching for here, like, gosh, where can I get the tranquility so that I can, yes, work, not be lazy? Where can I get that? Jesus says, it's found in me. That's why the verse we all know and love so much in Matthew 11, 28 and 29 just bursts forth with hope and life when Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor. Come to me, book of Ecclesiastes. Come to me, Tim Chaddock. Come to me, all of you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. There it is. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will, it's not a suggestion, it's a promise, you will find rest for your souls. What does envy require? It requires repentance, but it also requires replacement. It needs to be replaced with something else. The church is not only to be known for being against certain things, like envy in our hearts, but also being for others. It must be replaced. Not with laziness, that's very clear here from our text. Not not like the fool, because that too is self-seeking and self-destructive. But it needs replacement with contentment and peace. 
So the preacher's imagining a world where effort could flow from a place of peace and contentment, where all of our efforts in the church as we use our gifts, at our jobs, in our families, in our communities, with our friends, all of our efforts could flow from a place of peace and contentment. This man in Ecclesiastes is looking, he's daydreaming, saying, gosh, what would the world would What would it be like if we could operate out of a place of contentment, out of a place of peace where we weren't looking at each other as as competition or as rivals, but just out of that peace that all of our efforts would flow from an inward satisfaction and Jesus says, this gift I give to you. That's what I give to you. To have a deep rest in our souls as we live life. So think about it right now. How would you live as a church member at Reality San Francisco, how would you live as a family member? How would you live as an employee, employer? How would you live if you already had everything you needed? How would you live right now? If you actually had everything you already needed, how would you run your business if you had everything you needed? How would you treat your friends if you had everything you needed? You would just work for the joy of that particular craft or for the good of others to the glory of God. And the Bible says, friends, it's possible to live like this. It's possible by the power of God. I've always been told that if you're trying to eat right, you should only go to the grocery store when you're full. Right, isn't that the common sense? Like, don't go when you're hungry because you are just dump everything in the cart. But go when you are full because you won't overeat what you overbought because you're, you're satisfied. And scripture saying again and again to us that you have the satisfaction in Christ. You have the power of the Holy Spirit. You have what you truly need. So church, operate like it. Live like it. Live like everything is grace. Live like everything has already been given to you in Christ Jesus as you learned a lesson a while back in 1 Corinthians. Aren't all things yours? Paul the Apostle is like, wait, last time I checked, Christ gave you everything. Christ gave you all that you need, so operate like that, that peace that comes from knowing that God delights in you, that he rejoices over you through his son. Because if you have the approval of God, you don't need to prove yourself through all of your doing. You can serve out of being. That is life in the spirit. That's why we're called to pray and to meditate on God's word and to read it and to eat it like it's more necessary than the food that you ate this morning because that's how we remind ourselves. That's how we tell ourselves a better story when we see other people with the stuff we want. Right, it's all about what you tell yourself. Oh, what do they have? What are they doing? How successful are they? How much money do they have? Wait, stop, what's a better story? I'm in Christ. And that person is my brother or sister. That person is a, is a man or woman made in the image of God and I have everything I need in Christ. You need to tell yourself a better story. And so here's four things I wanna leave you with as we enter into our, our time of just responding to what the Holy Spirit wants to do. Four things that we need that kill envy in our lives and in our churches. And the first is a better understanding of grace. We need to kill envy, like pulling weeds out of, out of our garden. We need a better understanding of grace. When you start telling yourself that story of what you deserve when other people have what you want, man, I should have that. They shouldn't have that. I shouldn't be outdone. Remember what your sin deserves. Your sin deserves the cross. My sin deserves the judgment of God. If we wanna talk about what we deserve, read the beginning of the book of Romans. The wages of sin is death. Remember what you deserve and remember what you've been given instead. 
See, the, the gospel, it's always bad news before it's good news, or as uh, J.I. Packer, one of my favorite theologians, once said, the gospel is the best news ever following the worst news possible. <laughs> the worst news possible is our sin deserves death and judgment from the hand of God, but what God has given us instead is grace. So when we think about what we deserve, tell ourselves the truth. We need a better understanding of grace. But secondly, we need a better understanding of the Holy Spirit. He really does give us new power, amen? He really does give us new desires. And without his help, you cannot kill sin. Without his help, you cannot produce fruit. We are called to live life in the spirit. We're called to interpret our desires as either being that of the flesh, which is the Bible's language to talk about our sinful desires, or the life of the spirit. It means we can't assume that whatever comes into our head in a moment where we're tempted is just how things should be. Because so many of us, so many of us operate like that. We, we, we see someone with something that we want and we begin to quickly tell ourselves the story. But we need to stop and say, is that from the flesh? Or is that from the Holy Spirit? We need to interpret our desires. We need a better understanding of the Holy Spirit and we need, thirdly, a better understanding of God's sovereignty, especially as it pertains to gifts. Because what you've just been going through in 1 Corinthians says that God distributes giftings as he wills. Giftings aren't earned. It's like, okay, who was the best in class today? You know, I'm gonna give you the gift of prophecy. Yes! <laughs> it doesn't work like that. Scripture says that God distributes gifts gifts as he wills for his purposes. For some of us, that's a little hard to grasp because oftentimes we measure God's love toward us by the gifts that he gives us. Speaking of spiritual giftings, we think, man, if God really loved me, he'd give me like 10 spiritual gifts. But scripture never says that God's love towards you is measured by how many spiritual gifts you have. God's love towards you is measured by the cross of Jesus Christ says, if you're in any doubt of my love for you, come to the communion table and remember what I have done. Gifts are undeserved and God gives them for his purposes. That's why we can rejoice in the success of other people. And lastly, we need a better understanding of our churches. We need a better understanding of the body of Christ. We are one. We are one together and we all have a job to do. Connection is better than competition any day. So we're to cultivate habits of generosity and service to others, especially when we are tempted to envy. And as I was praying uh, this week, I was reminded of a scripture in Romans that is so beautiful. And I thought, man, what would our churches look like if we took this scripture to heart? In Romans 12, 9, Paul says, love one another with brotherly affection. And here's what I love. Outdo one another in showing honor. Isn't that Amazing outdo, outshine. If you want to outdo someone, outdo them in showing each other honor. It means this is what God wants for his church to recognize, to praise one another's accomplishments gladly with joy in our heart. We often outdo one another in showing ourselves honor. But scripture is telling us to outdo one another in showing each other honor. Not that we are to pretend, but we're to remember that if the spirit of God is in the person next to us, then there is always evidences of grace that we can rejoice in. That's being realistic. Let's stop, stop talking about creating a culture of this or that. Let's be the culture. Let's just be the culture we want to see in the church. 
This should be a place where the only competition happening is holy competition. The holy competition, not of envy, but of honor. Where we're looking to outdo one another, to show one another honor. Because, and this is what's beautiful, if you are looking to prefer others before yourself, then you will have a church where everyone is looked up to and no one is looked down on. That is what Christ wants for his church. Because at the heart of our faith is a savior who rescues us out of the vicious cycle of envy and covetousness and jealousy and creates a virtuous one of faith, hope, and love. We need to confess it. We need to acknowledge what God already acknowledges so often motivates us. God, I confess my envy today. I confess my jealousy. I confess my covetousness, even as it pertains to the church. But I thank you that you not only forgive me my sin, but you give me arms full of peace. You give me a heart full of contentment, a heart full of tranquility, knowing that I have, if I have Christ, I have everything I need. And I can live like that by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, I ask for your church that you would reveal to us, reveal to each woman and each man in this room that matters so much to you, where they've been motivated by envy where envy is perhaps what's driving their efforts at their jobs and their families, their friendships, or perhaps even in this church. I pray your spirit would convince us that we might confess it. Confess it to you and celebrate knowing that Christ died for our sin. Christ died so that we would not be communities of envy, but communities of love. And would you replace these vile things with the fruit of your spirit so that the church would be known for love. I pray that truly this community would be a place where men and women outdo each other by showing honor. And lastly, Father, I pray for anyone in this room who does not yet know you, who has never put their faith in Jesus Christ I pray that right now in this moment they would realize that apart from you, there is no hope. Apart from you, there is no forgiveness. There is no redemption. Just everlasting judgment. And in this moment, I pray that your spirit would convict them so mightily that with a heart full of faith, they would say right now the simple prayer in their hearts, Jesus, I confess my sin and I know that you came to live for me, die for me, and rise for me so that I could be forgiven and given eternal life. Jesus, accept me not on the basis of what I have done. Accept me on the basis of what you have done. We pray that they would pray that with a heart full of faith so that we could all rejoice together as a family filled with their spirit through Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, when he took the bread and he passed it around to his disciples, what he was saying when he reinterpreted this Jewish Passover meal and said, I am the lamb, I am the lamb, 
that is going to be sacrificed for your sins. What he was saying was this. Whatever's between us, whatever sin is between us, will be between us no longer because I will be broken for you. Broken for your sin. So that whatever was between us would be no longer. So that whatever you lack would be given to you. So as you come forward to the communion table down here in the front and up in the balcony, as you come forward, we come with a heart saying, Christ, my sin deserved for you to be broken. But you rose again to give me the peace and contentment I need. So that our posture of worship can, can be that of arms open, arms receiving what God has for us today, receiving the fullness of life in the spirit. So as we celebrate communion, we are saying, Jesus, I believe you died and risen and are coming again. And we celebrate that. That we could be forgiven of even the darkest of motives brought into the newness of life. If you need prayer for anything, come up and pray with the men and women who are here in the prayer team to pray with you and for you. Let's celebrate that together. Let's celebrate it and ask God to do a mighty work among us now in his name.